It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Tracy about diabetes insipidus. When you hear the word diabetes, you probably think of blood sugar and insulin. But diabetes insipidus has nothing to do with blood sugar. This is actually, essentially, water diabetes. Diabetes insipidus involves the dysregulation of an antidiuretic hormone called vasopressin. There are two types of diabetes insipidus, central and nephrogenic. Central diabetes insipidus involves dysregulation in the production of vasopressin in the pituitary gland, and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus involves the action of vasopressin in the kidneys, according to the NIH website. Tracy has central diabetes insipidus. When her pituitary gland stopped producing vasopressin correctly, she started experiencing a wide variety of extreme symptoms, including urinating up to 16 liters per day. That means that she was expelling far more liquid from her body than she was taking in every day. This led to extreme thirst, excruciating headaches, slurred speech, dysregulation in her electrolytes, heart rate, and blood pressure, and extreme fatigue, among other symptoms. This is a little-known disease that is likely far more common than you would suspect, because new research is linking brain injuries to the onset of diabetes insipidus. And as we'll hear from Tracy today, her issues all started after a motor vehicle accident. So if you or someone you know has experienced an increased volume of urinary output after a brain injury, and your doctors haven't been able to explain it, this could be a potential explanation. For Tracy, it wasn't just that doctors were unable to uncover her diagnosis, they were also unwilling. Because Tracy has a science background, and she applied that to her own body, discovered her own diagnosis, and still could not get doctors to test her for it. And by the time she was finally diagnosed, she was on the verge of losing her life. This is another just absolutely stunning conversation, an incredible story of survival, and a rare personal insight inside a rare disease. There's some interesting parallels with last week's episode with Kristen on acromegaly, which is caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland. So we've been learning all about the pituitary gland recently, not just through acromegaly and diabetes insipidus, but also my partner Andy, who just had surgery on her pituitary gland to remove a prolactinoma. And she'll be coming back on the podcast to talk about that experience soon. But I thought it was so interesting how all of these different iterations of ways that the pituitary gland can affect the body are all coming up on the podcast at the same time. Absolutely fascinating. I get very excited sharing stories on the podcast when I feel like the potential to help someone in need is high. And this episode absolutely makes that list. Tracy does a sensational job of telling us about the dangers of brain injury and diabetes insipidus and sharing some statistics about how common this disease may actually be in the world. Tracy's doing incredible work advocating on behalf of the diabetes insipidus community, educating people about this disease so that other people don't have to suffer the extreme negligence that she suffered in her journey searching for a diagnosis. Another incredible episode that I am thrilled to share with you today. As I mentioned last week, we had our amazing episode with Kristen discussing acromegaly. This is such a great episode. I was thrilled with how this one turned out. Kristen has an incredible story. If you have not yet listened, I highly recommend checking that one out. 
And we did get some feedback from that episode. This is from Instagram from Mel Burcham. It says, listen to this. Kristen has a profound story of courage, persistence, and love in action. Thank you, Mel. I could not have said it better myself. And then over on Spotify, we got a comment from Naughty Moon on Kristen's episode that says, thanks. Diagnosed spinal multidegeneration. Doctors not helping since January of 2023. Suffering more now than 25 years. Mold in my body for 23 years. Untreated, 62, crumbling, ready to give up. And this person asks for help in Columbus, Ohio. This comment is when I realized that I can't reply to comments on Spotify. I wanted to reply to this so badly, but there's no functionality to reply to a comment on Spotify. So I wanted to share it on the podcast this week and tell this person, Naughty Moon, there is help available. The easiest thing you can do is to reach out to Patients Rising at patientsrising.org. We had a great episode on the podcast with Terry Wilcox, co-founder and CEO of Patients Rising, but they have a free hotline and email address where you can reach out and talk to a real person if you're having any sort of medical access issue in the United States. So just call 1-800-685-2654 or email help at patientsrising.org and you can speak with a real person for free who will try to lead you in the right direction. This is such a great resource for people in our community who are struggling to get medical help. We also got a comment on Spotify from an older episode about hyperhidrosis, the excessive sweating disease. This is from Emmy. It says, I so appreciate hearing this. I'm also 32 and have hyperhidrosis all over my body. It's so difficult to manage and it's so misunderstood. Thank you for sharing your story. Emmy, thank you for your comment. This is another great episode of the podcast with Kristen about hyperhidrosis. Another Kristen. (laughs) And Kristen actually posted on Instagram recently that she's had a recent influx of people reaching out to her after listening to her podcast interview. That's something I love about doing this podcast is that our old episodes are getting plays all the time. I'm trying to build a library of real lived experiences from people living with rare disease, disability, invisible illness, chronic illness, chronic pain, undiagnosed disease. I'm hoping that anyone in the world living through something similar can find a conversation that speaks to them or addresses their disease directly. And I feel like that is working because people are finding our old episodes. And that is something that I am very grateful for. I've been having a bit of a rough health day. I think I've pushed it a little too hard over the last few days with the Thanksgiving holiday. We had a great time having Thanksgiving with Andy's family and then with my family. But back-to-back Thanksgivings have got me flared up a little bit. So I'll keep it brief today and say that Major Pain Podcast needs your support. And you can learn all the ways that you can support this show on our website at majorpainpodcast.com slash support. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia, and to the Stimpunks Foundation, because this podcast is the current recipient of a Stimpunks creator grant. Check them out at stimpunks.org. I'll remind you that I am not a medical professional. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our incredible episode with Tracy about diabetes insipidus. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. You actually sent me a email sort of breaking down a little bit of your major pain, and it sounds so interesting. So I'm thrilled to get to talk to you about that. But before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Tracy, why don't you tell us about yourself? 
okay, I am a mom. I'm in my mid fifties and I have a big education, which actually helped me figure out my major pain. So I'm a clinical and sport dietitian. Mm. Before that, I did my master's and PhD in kinesiology in sports psychology. And I did a lot of research for 10 years. And my undergrad was actually in neuroscience. And I was a brain researcher at McMaster University for a couple of years. Wow. That's so interesting because from what I know of your story, that directly relates. Yes. It's almost as if someone told you to go back in time and study this thing because <laughs> it was going to be so relevant in your future. Well, it's funny that you say that because I used to think at some point, um, why did I do all, all this education? What was the purpose of all this? And then I realized the purpose was to save my life, yet I didn't know that through the 14 years I was going to school. Wow. <laughs> it, it's like a weird sci-fi story that someone wrote your own life. That's so interesting. Yes. And there's some ironic um, synchronicities between what the doctor's treatments were and things that uh, I had actually done as a brain researcher. They'd say, we want you to have brain surgery and have these electrodes placed in your brain to fix this other problem I developed from the accident. And I would say no, because I used to do those surgeries on rats and I know what happens and I know what their brain looks like after. Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, okay. You mentioned an accident. Let's get into this. Uh, Tracy, what is your major pain? My major pain is central diabetes insipidus. Central diabetes insipidus has nothing to do with blood sugar. Um, so it's not diabetes mellitus that you would get. Either you're born with it or you acquire through obesity or insulin resistance later in life. This actually has to do with the brain, the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus. Now, normally people would develop central diabetes insipidus if they had a brain tumor and had brain surgery or they had brain cancer, um, but it's not something they knew that would actually happen from a traumatic brain injury until around 2015. Hmm. So my accident was in 2005. And so I became very sick instantly after having a brain injury in a car accident. So, wow. so, and you were literally undiagnosable because they had not even figured out that this type of accident could cause your diagnosis until 10 years after yes. your accident. Yes, exactly. That's so exactly. frustrating. So <laughs> it, it, it was very frustrating. And I had other injuries um, as related to the accident that we had to deal with. But as soon as the accident happened, um, I developed this ice pick headache right in the center of my brain, like right through my brain into the center of my brain. And I had slurred speech as if I had had a stroke. And so I went to the emergency room and they diagnosed me with a concussion. They said, you're going to be fine. Go home. You know, if you have any more symptoms, come back. And sure enough, things just started snowballing downhill from there. So um, it got to the point where I was falling over all the time. I could no longer read. Uh, I couldn't say words. I lost my brain dictionary. Um, and I actually developed aphasia and ataxia as part of it. And when I went back into the hospital two days later, I forced them to do a brain MRI of my brain. And it showed that I had damaged um, Broca's area or the speech area of my brain, but that doesn't actually cause slurred speech. So they were trying to figure out for many years, why was I having this ice pick headache? 
Um, and to the point where I had gone to pain specialists because they thought it was my neck uh, that had been possibly injured, like from whiplash in the accident. So I actually underwent three neurotomy surgeries in my neck to burn off the nerves in my neck to try and make this head pain go away, but it didn't. Wow. And was on painkillers for pretty much 12 years uh, that I didn't really need for this extreme head pain where I couldn't stand up. Like it would make me lose my balance. I was falling over all the time. And people were thinking I was drunk because I was slurring and falling over at the grocery store. So it was very difficult. Wow, that sounds horrifying. What was the original accident that occurred? So my daughter and I were driving to the store and uh, we were going straight through a green light when a woman was supposed to wait and make sure it was clear before turning into us. She decided not to wait. So she kind of T-boned us at oh. 50 kilometers an hour. Wow. So it was that shaken head force, uh, the acceleration and deceleration that caused diffuse actional injuries or shear injuries to multiple parts of my brain. Wow. And do you think that, you know, now that you know that this caused diabetes insipidus, is that something that just like switches on like a light switch with that shearing force of the accident? Yes. Actually, research has come out recently to prove that this shearing force in MVAs is one of the cause of diabetes insipidus. Wow. And MVA being motor vehicle accident. Yeah. That yeah. Is a motor vehicle accident. Fascinating. Yeah, head trauma, a brain injury. So shearing forces to the brain, diffuse actual injuries to the brain cause central diabetes insipidus are one of the causes. If you don't have a brain tumor or brain surgery, from traumatic brain injury, it is those shearing forces that are known to cause central diabetes insipidus. Wow. And can you define central diabetes insipidus for us? Can you describe a little bit of the process of what's yeah. happening in the body and, and how it works? In central diabetes insipidus, what happens is when your brain is shaken inside your skull, your pituitary gland and your hypothalamus are very, very sensitive organs right in the middle of your brain. And the pituitary that has the front of the pituitary and the back of the pituitary so what happens is that you, it produces the hormone, antidiuretic hormone, when, which controls all the water in your body um, and your urination, things like that. And it's also known as vasopressin. So when your brain is injured, in my case, uh, and people who develop CDI, the hypothalamus or the back of the pituitary get injured and your cells are damaged and you stop producing antidiuretic hormone. So when you're not producing antidiuretic hormone and these symptoms came on later for me was that you can't control your water regulation in your body. Um, you can't control your electrolytes, your heart rate, your blood pressure and, uh, you get extreme fatigue, you develop something called polyuria. So you're peeing more in excess of 13 liters, I mean, three liters a day, rather. In my case, after a few years, I was peeing 16 liters a day, but only drinking two liters. So you're peeing out all your body water and you're getting severe dehydration. And then you get something called polydipsia, which is extreme thirst. So you're extremely thirsty all the time, but you can't keep up on the amount of water you need because you don't have this hormone in your body, antidiuretic hormone or vasopressin to keep the water in your body. Wow. So no matter how much you drink, you can't replenish 
you know, 16 liters of day that you're urinating out. You just can't keep up. Yeah. And the problem with that is that people who are really uh, have more of a severe brain injury than I do, where say they're, you know, multiple serious brain injuries and they're in ICU, they can't actually drink the water because they're unconscious in the ICU from a car accident brain injury, for Mm. example. So they get something um, where their sodium goes very, very high in their blood. So they get hypernatremia and this can cause seizures um, and confusion, disorientation and coma. On the other hand, with me, because I wasn't in a coma initially, um, I could drink water that when you're drinking water to try and replace that 16 liters a day, you get hyponatremia, which can cause more profound fatigue. Like I would get to the point where my body would tell me, go to bed and don't wake up. But what was happening was my sodium was plummeting in my body and it was forcing me to go into a coma, which would have killed me. So it's a very life-threatening disease, especially early on. So people who get the hypernatremia or the high sodium right away, usually there's an 80 to 90% chance in the first week or two after the accident that these people will die from it. When they have autopsies, they find that 82% of people that have died from traumatic brain injury actually have central diabetes insipidus. You also lose your other electrolytes when you have all that peeing happening. So you lose your potassium, in my case, my sodium, my magnesium, and my calcium. So it affects your heart rate. So you'd have tachycardia. You'd have very, very low blood pressure. Um, you know, you'd be getting muscle spasms all over the place because you're losing all the electrolytes in your body. And so I would have to go into the hospital multiple days a week just to get like two liters of saline plus have all these electrolytes repleted to the point where the doctors would say, we don't know what's wrong with you, but it's not our job to replace your electrolytes. Like what, you know, go away or take a banana. And they were really demeaning me at the time (laughs) and treating me poorly. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Here's a banana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Get out of my office. You don't need potassium. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's so upsetting. I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that. Um, You mentioned having ataxia and aphasia. So, I'm a little familiar with both of these things from doing this podcast, uh, but yes. can you tell us about those? I know aphasia has several different forms, so I'm curious what yes. form of aphasia. Was it the uh, replacing words form of aphasia where you're trying to say one word, but another word is coming yes, out? it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was expre- expressive aphasia. So with me, what happened was I would think something in my head, so I could think my thoughts normally. Say I'd want to say, oh, look at that nice book. And then what would come out of my mouth would be red and green Christmas tree. Yeah. (laughs) So all these ridiculous, it was like my brain and my mouth weren't attached. My daughter was only four years old at the time. So she thought this was hysterical, right? Anytime. But it was really, really frustrating, especially as somebody who used to teach university was I'd try to speak, but I could not say what I was trying to speak. I went to speech language pathology for seven years and that really helped me relearn to speak and get those words. And I take a couple of vitamin supplements that really help. I take um, choline, phosphatidylcholine, which helps me get my words and lethicin, which are two things that really work with word finding in the brain. Oh, that's fascinating. That's so, I didn't know that there was any supplements that could help with that. 
Yeah, I kind of came across it because I was doing research on it. And um, choline is very important for memory. And as I said, I lost my brain dictionary after the accident. So I'd be reading like a kindergarten book. My daughter was starting kindergarten at the accident. And, and I could not remember the definitions of the words. So I couldn't get through a sentence because I couldn't remember what the words meant. And by the time I got to the end of the sentence, I forgot the sentence. So I did some research um, once my brain healed a bit more. And choline is key for neurotransmissions for memory and lecithin, which are actually in eggs, but I take a higher dose. For me, at least, it helps me get my words because when my brain gets really tired in the evenings, I have trouble with word finding a little bit. Yeah, wow, that's so or may th throw in a wrong word here or there. Yeah, the first time I heard of aphasia was from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. There's a classic <laughs> episode where there's some sort of virus on board the space station where everyone gets aphasia, uh, and you know it's kind of played for laughs a little bit in the episode, but it's also terrifying. Yeah. You know, and, and it's so yeah. interesting hearing your daughter's reaction because if you start speaking gibberish, you know, some people may laugh, but in your mind. You're trying yeah. to communicate and you can't. And that must be yes. terrifying. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And they would always try to interrupt me to tell me what they thought I had to say. My husband at the time and my daughter, they're like, oh, you want to say this? And I'm like, no, just just give me time to, mm. to get the word out. Right. So and people would think that you were either, you know, taking drugs or, you know, uh, stoned out of your mind because you're talking like this because there was little awareness in my community of aphasia at the time. Yeah, and I've actually experienced something similar where before getting medication for my disease, it really affected my speech pretty severely. And there'd be times yeah. where I was trying really hard to get words out and it's just insanely difficult and it's taking me a really long time for each word. And I have experienced that where people like jump in and try to fill in your words and you're trying to say something completely different. And when they jump in, it sort of makes you have to reset what you were trying to say. Yeah. If, if that makes any sense. So then it's like twice no, it's, as hard. It's true. Yeah. It's like twice as hard to get the words out. And it, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we need to have a conversation about this while I can speak maybe tomorrow and kind of talk about yes. this outside of the event to have a plan of action for when this happens. Otherwise you just can't communicate through it in those moments. So you have to kind of communicate through it when it's not happening. Yeah, no, it's true. Like in the mornings when your brain is more refreshed, uh, at least for me, when I get sleep, um, I, my brain is a little bit better earlier in the day than like say at night, or especially if I've done a lot of concentrating and reading and thinking or speaking, you know, giving talks or whatever um, that tires out my brain. My brain reserve is low from my brain injury so as my brain gets tired, I only have about like five hours of brain energy a day where I can function at a high level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me about your ataxia. Ataxia. So what happened with me is right after the accident, I got severe vertigo uh, within hours of the accident. And then when I was trying to walk, I would just tip over like a tree and hit the ground on my left side. So we went back to the doctor and they thought it was just something with my vestibular apparatus uh, going wrong, like my inner ear type of thing. And I had extreme vertigo, like the world was spinning, the room was spinning constantly to the point where I would throw up. And so that took quite a long time to figure out. I was very lucky that I went to a um, ear, nose, throat doctor 
and they could do this special testing um, where they shoot water in your ears and they see if there's damage to the inner ears. And it did show up that I had a deficit on my left side of my body, but also in the CAT scan I had, it showed that I had an injury to my brain that was the cause of the ataxia. So a little piece of my brain died um, and uh, led to the ataxia. So it took many years to get over that. So I had to use a walker for two to three years. And um, I was felt very, a lot of shame about that, actually, because I'm, I used to do Ironmans competitively mm. and, and, you know, have always been an athlete my entire life. So what I did was I got this really fancy grocery stroller uh, that like would go into a walker position and I would use that. So people that I would see me out wouldn't know that I was as disabled as I was. Or if I just wanted to go for a walk around the block, my husband and my daughter would stand on either side of me and just hold each of my arms. And that way I could walk. Otherwise, I would just fall over. Like we'd be walking without them and I'd just start leaning and tipping and I'd land in the bushes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the interesting thing about that was um, I set up my bicycle beside my bed because as I said, I used to compete in a lot of triathlons and Ironmans. And I could sit up and ride my bike when I was holding on to something and I wasn't falling over. And then when my daughter was five or six, she was starting to learn how to ride a bicycle. And I thought, I wonder if I can actually ride a bike outside, you know, and not fall over. So I, I wanted to try. And so they went on either side of me just in case. And sure enough, I could ride a bike. So I called this neuroscientist that I knew and I said, why can I ride a bike, but I can't walk? And he said, because you're moving so much faster that it compensates and you're, you're balancing with the handlebars. So you've got a wider stance of balance. So it compensates for your ability to be upright. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And a lot of people I've talked to with ataxia, it causes tremors and sort of like functional issues um, or speech issues. And it sounds like with you, it was more of a balance yeah. issue. It was a balance issue, although I was having the slurred speech and stuff. Mm. So they, they weren't, and I was having hand problems. So they weren't sure if my speech issues were related to the tear and Broca's area, or if it was related partially to the ataxia. But it turns out that the slurred speech was actually severe brain dehydration from the central diabetes insipidus. Wow. So you had 10 years of your life where your functionality just kind of goes out the window and doctors have no idea why you can't keep fluids in your body. Again, doctors have no idea why. And yeah. looking back, it's extremely obvious, you know, you have central diabetes insipidus from this car crash. And e even if we take the car crash out of the equation, just the fact that you can't keep fluids in your body should have been a clue that there was a serious issue and you have doctors telling you to eat a banana and get out of your office. How does that make you feel that there was something that should have been diagnosed for 10 years that was missed over and over again? Well, I'm a very persistent person and I'm grateful for the education that I had because none of my injuries to my brain took away my knowledge base. And as my speech got better and my brain healed over the years, neuroplasticity kicked in, I was able to start doing a lot of research myself. So I knew that I could figure out what was wrong with me. 
So I just went through all the body systems from my past science training because I have multiple years of science training. And I figured out that it had to be an endocrine disorder um, because 80% of people that get brain injuries actually develop endocrine disorders. So I started going through what endocrine disorder it was. The other thing that started happening was I had a dramatic weight loss. So I was 118 pounds of muscle before the accident and I went down to 89 pounds. By 2009, I could barely breathe. I was so extremely short of breath and so weak and so thin that I was in a wheelchair um, to get around. And I had gone, I'd probably seen over 100 emergency doctors by that point. And I started seeing endocrinologists. And I thought, well, the only thing that can cause extreme weight loss and some of these symptoms could be maybe a thyroid issue or central diabetes insipidus. So I went to four endocrinologists and I, um, the first one I said to him, you know, I think I have central diabetes insipidus. They said, no, that's impossible. It's only caused by brain tumors or brain surgery. Get out of my office basically. Mm. And so that happened a few times. The third one, he said, well, let's test your hormones. And what he saw was that I had low thyroid hormone. So they thought, um, one of them was low, one of them was high. So they thought maybe it was hyperthyroidism that it was a thyroid problem. So they did a radioactive test on me and it showed that it was not a thyroid problem. And so I said to him, I said, well, then it has to be central diabetes. I want you to test me. And he goes, we don't do that test and no, you don't have it. I'm sorry. Like I'm done with you. And so what continued to happen over the rest of that summer was, you know, I went from having IVs a couple of days a week to six days a week. And one of the hospitals, the head of emergency came down and he said, look, you can't come here for IVs anymore. And I said, well, you're going to kill me if I can't, because I think I have central diabetes insipidus. Luckily, in where I live, there's three hospitals. So then... I developed extreme kidney pain, uh, obviously peeing 16 liters a day. And I was actually peeing out some of my bladder tissue. And um, so I took it to the doctor and I showed it to him and it looked like someone had shredded Kleenex and put it in a jar. And I said, please test this tissue. Something's really wrong. This is what I think is going on. And at the time they thought it was um, transitional cell cancer. So then I had two bladder biopsies and some treatment in case it was a surface cell cancer from peeing so much, actually. So while I was in the hospital, the doctor kept me in for a couple of days and they didn't give me anything to drink. And he's like, were you sneaking water in the middle of the night? And I said, no, why? Because uh, they had a catheter on me. They said, because you're peeing, you know, 16 liters. And I said, I know I tried to tell you, I think I have you know, this condition, diabetes insipidus. And he was like, oh, I don't know if I believe you kind of thing. It could be something else. And so I said, all right. I was in emergency, got out of emergency, was going to my last endocrinologist appointment. And it was the same thing. And I said to her, you know, this is what I think is going on. Here's my history. Here's my education. And she looked at me. Um, and I was getting pretty frustrated by this point. Like I was pretty pissed off to be honest. <laughs> and she said, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's either something rare I've never, ever seen before, 
or something from all the treatment that they gave you because they tried probably a hundred medications on me by this point uh, to try and fix these problems. And she said, but I suggest that you go to an ashram and pray because Mm. you're dying. Wow. And so my husband and I left that office and I planned my funeral. We did our our last trip as a family. And um, while I was away in, we went to Hawaii because they're my daughter and husband's dream at the time were to go surfing. So they went surfing in Hawaii. I went with them and watched. I did more research and I found this doctor in Montreal who was a specialist in diabetes insipidus. So I phoned him mm. and I said, Hey, this is what's going on with me. He says, can you send me your lab work? Cause I kept getting labs every time I'd be in the hospital and I sent it to him. He goes, I'm pretty confident that you have diabetes insipidus from your brain injury. He says, I'm coming to Vancouver next week for the Canada-wide endocrine conference. I'm going to present your case. I'm going to slap the hands of the medical system and I'm going to make sure that you get tested. Wow. So he came to Vancouver. He went to the conference. Uh, It was on the Friday. On the Monday, I get a call from the last doctor I saw in the hospital. He said, what the hell is going on? (laughs) He (laughs) said, you know, this guy came to the conference and he's forcing the hospital to give you this 24-hour water deprivation test. He said, we've never done this test here. And I said, well, I happen to have the protocol for you. I'll send it to you. I got it online, <sighs> right, from the, the Diabetes Insipidus Foundation. And so it took them a few days to organize the test because um, you have to have a nurse with you the entire time. They recollect all your urine. You're not allowed to drink anything. Um, my test ended after eight hours. So for eight hours, you can't have a sip of water. You can't have anything to drink 12 hours before. And then they measure your blood every 15 minutes and your urine every 15 minutes. And what happens is, is that the concentration of your blood goes up. It's called your osmolarity of your blood. And if it goes above 300 and the concentration of your urine goes down, your urine looks like a glass of water. Like there's no color to it and there's no solute in it. And if that goes below 300, it's 100% you have central diabetes insipidus. And so within eight hours, they proved that I had diabetes insipidus. So then that doctor, uh, the one that had saw me at the hospital said, well, who do you want to treat you, this guy from Montreal or me? And I said, well, if you're actually going to give me the treatment, because there's one treatment in the world for it, which is desmopressin or vasopressin. So they replace the hormone in your brain through a nose spray that I, I have to take. And um, there's no negative side effects to it, except that you won't pee for a few hours and your urine concentrates and you keep your electrolytes in. So I go to his office and we're sitting there and he says, I know you tested positive for the disorder, but I don't want to give you the medication. (laughs) And I just looked at him and I just went, okay. I said, are you a father? And he just looked at me strangely. He said, yeah, why? I said, well, by this point, my daughter was eight or nine years old. I said, I have a, I know a nine-year-old daughter at home. And if you don't give me this medicine, I'm going to die probably within the next month. I said, if you do give me the medication, I'll be able to go to her wedding and be a part of her life for the rest of her life. I said, I will not hold you accountable. I said, there's no negative side effects to this medication, except you won't pee for eight hours. I said, 
you know, nothing's going to happen to me, but I won't hold you medically responsible. And he just looked at me and he pushed the medication to me um, across the table. And I, I put one pump up my nose. And with what it felt like was like my brain was a dried up sea sponge. You know, you saw those as a kid from Florida or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was like my brain expanded all of a sudden. I'd had severe brain dehydration for years, mm. which was causing the slurred speech. Instantly, that ice pick headache that I'd had surgeries and thousands of pills for went away within 20 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And my slurred speech went away in his office. And he witnessed me. Um, he actually, I, we're very close now. He's still my doctor. And he said he's never seen, it took about three years for me to get my energy back, uh, to gain my weight back and to get back to kind of functioning. And he said he's never seen such a dramatic transformation in a patient in his life physically. When was this that you started the nasal spray? 2009. Wow. Uh, November 2009. That is an incredible story. <laughs> That's, I mean, that is an unbelievable story. And yeah. I, I'm so deeply disturbed that so many doctors refused to treat you. Yeah. And you live this. So, what was your inner monologue about this? Like, what did you tell yourself about why is this happening that doctors are refusing to treat me? Ignorance, plain ignorance. And what I learned from all the doctors early on was they only read about this in one sentence in a textbook in medical school. They'd never seen anybody with it. They'd never treated anybody with it. And at the time, as I said earlier on, it wasn't known that it happened from concussion or brain injury. What they know now, um, you know, it's been 18 years since my accident, and there's a lot more published research on this, luckily is that it happens with sport concussion, uh, mild concussion, mild traumatic brain injury. You don't have to have a serious brain injury to develop this problem. So more people are learning about it now. Actually, when I go into the hospital now, they have my chart flagged because a couple of years ago, my sodium did plummet down to 121. And uh, I had to be in the hospital for two weeks um, to get treatment because they were worried that, you know, because when your sodium goes below 125, you are at risk of dying. All the interns would come and surround me. <laughs> it was like one of those medical shows where they're like, you have what? And they like come to me and I give them a little talk about it and how it happens. And then when I was in the recovery room after every surgery I have, the nurses are like, can you do an in-service on this for the patients and the staff? Because we don't know anything about this. You're the first patient we've ever seen mm. in Vancouver that's ever had this, right? So, and the interesting thing about this is there's over 5 million people that develop head injury every year from car accidents, from sport injuries, from other things that happen. 50% of those will get central diabetes insipidus. Um, seven percent of those will have permanent central diabetes insipidus, like I do, where I have to take the medication for the rest of my life. The, uh, Thirty percent of them have transient, where over weeks to months it kind of disappears, and they're fine and they can get on with their life. So to me, that means there's two and a half million people out there probably that don't have an answer, mm. and some of them have probably died. Right. So that's why it's such a passion project for me because I want. I don't want anybody to go through the hell that I was put through through the medical system. Wow. 
And what are you doing to get this word out? I mean, obviously, this is we're doing that today. But uh, you know, I yeah. know that you do this outside of what we're talking about today. What what is your plan? I've been in touch with NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, because Broca's aphasia, ataxia, and central diabetes are all rare disorders. And they actually wrote a big story on me and published it all over the internet and all in their program and papers all over the web this February. Hmm. And so they've done that. And now I'm going to start doing a series of TED Talks, Instagram posts on central diabetes insipidus. And I'm writing a TED Talk right now on it to present this at a TED Talk. Wow, this is so cool. I, I'm just so blown away by this and so excited that you are you know, making this your passion project to get this word out because I also know what it's yeah. like to live undiagnosed for a long time and to feel this you know, constant anxiety, this constant pressure internally saying something is wrong, you need to do something and going to a doctor and then just saying, ah, you know, this isn't my problem. I don't want to deal with this. And just feeling like there's nowhere to go. And even in your case, you had the answer. You figured it out. Yeah. How long yeah. was it after you first discovered central diabetes insipidus? You know, you had kind of come to this conclusion through your own research that you probably had this disease. How long did it take to get that diagnosis? Uh, it took uh, almost two years. Almost two years. And that's yeah. just like inexcusable that you could walk into a doctor's office with the answer and just because of their ignorance of the yeah. disease that you're talking about, they refuse to even test you. You know, like th this is such a huge problem where yes. if a patient comes in having done their own research, it's seen as sort of like annoying or out of place for a lot of doctors. And then that leaves you as the patient wondering if you are going to live because no one will test you for this disease. Yeah. yeah. And what I have done is I have written every endocrinologist and the hospitals and um, told them what the diagnoses were, when they were diagnosed, the treatment, who my treating physician was, and kind of said, you missed this mm. and you're killing people. And so next time you have somebody who comes into your office with a brain injury, my neurologist, the problem was she was an MS doctor. She wasn't a brain injury doctor. And so that was a problem. And I said, please refer on to someone at GF Strong, the Brain Injury Institute. Please refer to an endocrinologist that specializes in central diabetes. And here are the list of journal articles from now 2010 to 2020 that prove that this is caused by even concussion, let alone serious brain injury. And so they've all written me back and said, I am so sorry that I missed this. And yes, if I ever see another patient like you, I will make sure that they get treatment, that they get the water deprivation test and that they don't have to go through what you've been through. Yeah, because not everyone is going to have this incredible lucky stroke where this one doctor who is, you know, this luminary yeah. in the field is going to go to a conference and sort of, you know, read the riot act for all the other doctors. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm going to actually, because I've done a lot of work with physicians for, uh, I worked as a counselor and a dietitian for the breast cancer prevention clinic for five years. Once I got my brain functioning back in 2012, actually, I was able to return to work from part-time for the first time since 2005. Wow. And so I'm just going to do like a, 
a fax out to all the doctor's office with a quick blurb about central diabetes insipidus and concussion and um, hypopituitarism after concussions, sport concussions and head injuries and car accidents. So that GPs are aware to let's test their test their hormones, right? Like it's an easy test. Let's do a uh, urine osmolarity test. Let's do a blood plasma. There's just some preventative tests that you can do to quickly diagnose this before you even get to a water deprivation test. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you reminded me so much of my own story because I just listened to a podcast about mast cell activation syndrome, which I was recently diagnosed with. Yes, and uh, it was Doctor Afrin who is you know one of the the country's leading doctors for MCAS. Mm-hmm. And he said yeah. that he believes that there may be upwards of 20% of the population that have some sort of mast cell dysregulation. Just this vast number, way higher than anyone uh, anyone working in the medical system is aware of, just because the yeah. research hasn't been done yet. And, you know, it comes in varying degrees where some people may never need medical intervention for it, but it is, you know, causing issues for them or someone like me where it becomes completely disabling and without medication i cannot function yeah but and there's this whole range within that and it's kind of similar to what you're saying about how some people will get central diabetes insipidus from a traumatic brain injury and then just recover and not need any any medical intervention but for you it's permanent and without the intervention you would have died so mm-hmm. it's just all about education. And there is this in just bizarre disconnect between what research has been done and the reality of what people are living with. And when you go in yes. and say, hey, this is my reality, I'm peeing 15 liters a day. And a doctor looks at that and says, well, there hasn't been any research to explain that. So it must all be in your mind. When you have, you know, a measured amount of urine where it's like, this is reality. This is what's happening. Why can't we just accept what we're seeing and then try to figure it out instead of blaming the patient and assuming that it is nothing that disconnect drives me up the wall i agree and having been a researcher a published researcher before it takes years from collecting data to publishing a paper and that's where a lot of this disconnect is but a lot of it's in ignorance in the doctors because they hyper-focus on the things they know, but they don't open their brain to go, oh, well, there's all these other things that are going on out there. And one cool thing that happened now is on Life Labs. Uh, so we have Life Labs here where you get all your blood tests, then you can look them up, luckily. And it's blood and urine tests. Is It will say now for all people in at least British Columbia, if I get a urine test, which I have to have regular blood tests and urine tests to monitor my levels to make sure that I don't need to go into the hospital or if I need to change my treatment at all or the amount of medication I'm taking. If my urine is showing that it's too dilute in it's below a certain amount of specific gravity or osmolarity, like below 300, it'll say could be diabetes insipidus, central diabetes insipidus now, right wow. on the lab reports. So that doctors will get flagged that and go, oh, my God, this person could have diabetes insipidus. It's so it's such like a no brainer to do that. Yeah, but they didn't do that until I challenged the medical system. That was you that made that happen. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, ugh, that's so cool. I, and that's one of those things like I, I would never think to to push for that for anything. I wouldn't know how to do that. So, I mean. We have all these amazing AI tools now and doctors have these, yes. you know, fancy, you know, computer systems that 
When I go to the doctor and I talk about stuff, they're always looking things up and reading about it as I'm there. Doctors can't keep every disease in their brain. They shouldn't be expected to. No. That's unrealistic. But we should have tools that can. Computers can do it. You know, computers can hold every disease. And when something is flagged to actually recommend a course of action like that, that should be a no-brainer. So that's so exciting that you made that happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And for everybody else out there listening, I say make Dr. Google your friend, look at PubMed, NCBI sites, do research, but make sure it's based in, you know, some type of science out there. The Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic are great mm -hmm. people that know a lot more knowledge. But when you go into an ER room, I, I've had this happen with my other medical problems. They'll be like, what? What is that? Because I got dystonia and dysautonomia, which you know about POT syndrome and stuff is mm -hmm. a part of the brain injury. And I would just say here, and I'd write it on a piece of paper. I'd say, go to your computer and Google all this. Come back in 15 minutes. Yeah. And they come back, they go, oh, okay. Like all the med students, they send you first or the residents, right? I said, like, I'm not going to go through this with you. I'd like you to go educate yourself and come on back and then we'll have a discussion. And that <laughs> really helped a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about dysautonomia because, you know, the way you were describing your symptoms sounded like yes. very much like dysautonomia. Yeah, I did get um, dysautonomia from the accident at first. So for me, it was very high tachycardia, and then I would pass out, <laughs> which is the common thing. Um, the blood was pooling in my legs, and I couldn't push the blood up to my heart. And I'm very grateful. I've actually had dysautonomia pot syndrome three times in the last 20 years, and it seems to happen anytime I get a concussion for me that I develop dysautonomia coming out. It's not genetic. But I was luckily to be able to do leg weights, uh, which were very helpful to me. As I told you, I was able to get back on my bike and leg exercises actually help push the blood with vasoconstriction back up to your heart. I would lay on the floor and put my legs up the wall to get my blood back up to my heart quicker. And I went on a really high salt diet and high, I was already on a high water diet because of the diabetes insipidus. And it took a couple of years for that to stabilize. I was eventually able to get back to running, mm. um, even when I had the diabetes insipidus, once I got the ataxia under control a bit more. And for me, running keeps it under control. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where I'm at now is now that I'm medicated, I'm trying to learn, uh, relearn yeah. how to do a lot of these things. And I've been running a lot. And well, it really depends. Like on a good day, I can run and on a bad day, I can't. Or on a bad day, if I yes. do run, it will actually flare me up. So I'm kind of trying to figure out where to go in the middle. But it's such an amazing experience to, you know, I was in a wheelchair and I thought I'd never run again. I thought I'd never bike again. And now to yeah. be kind of working through the kinks of I can do it if I do it the right way. What is the right way? And letting my body teach me. exactly Not where I expected to be. And I'm thrilled to be there. Yeah. And you know what? There's still going to be progress. I was in the same boat as you, Jesse. And for years, uh, I was like, will I ever race again? Will I ever actually be able to run more than like a couple of kilometers? And I just did a uh, trail half marathon in California last weekend and won my age group. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, you know, it, it took, it's been, like I said, 18 years. Um, I started running again. Finally, my health stabilized enough in 2017. Wow. That's incredible. So you got to stay patient and you got to stay diligent and you can never, ever give up hope. Yeah, absolutely. That I, you know, that's incredible advice. 
So when I think about diabetes, you know, I think most people, we think about insulin, blood sugar yes. regulation, but yours is all about water. So this is what is water diabetes basically is what yeah. a nickname for it would be. Yeah. So what, so this sort of changes the conception of what is the word diabetes? Does, does that just mean there's like yeah. something in your body that is dysregulated? Nope. Diabetes means that you have just like regular diabetes, the symptoms of diabetes are the same. You can have um, extreme fatigue and you can have uh, urine, like you can have more peeing sometimes even with regular diabetes, not, not to the same extent, but it's just like a dysregulation where you get extreme fatigue and um, some excess urine. Hmm which are the symptoms of regular diabetes, but theirs is related to the pancreas and insulin glucose regulation. And if they can keep those under control, they can increase their energy levels and decrease their urination. For me, it was, it's a pituitary hypothalamus hormone that is missing. Wow. What, what is it like to urinate the amount that you were forced to for so many years? What is the practicality oh, of that? Oh my God. It, well, basically, I've got at first it was a giant big gulp cup in my car. Mm. <laughs> and I have uh, I use a yogurt container now because literally I was peeing like every two minutes and you pee all night long. So I wasn't getting any sleep for years, which worsened the brain injury type stuff. So as soon as my medication wears off, I cannot control my ability to pee. So, uh, luckily being a former triathlete and trail runner, if I'm in on a run, there's always bushes, which are handy. Um, I always have to carry toilet paper around with me and stuff, but you know, I have a container in my car. If I have to pee, I have to go pee in my car and then rinse and drain it out. Um, you just have to adapt. Are there people with diabetes insipidus that use a catheter? I don't know that answer. I'm not sure if they did. I mean, when I go into the hospital and have surgeries, because I also had to have 14 surgeries after my accident, unfortunately, every time I'm in the hospital, they do keep me on a catheter because I'm just up too much and I can't recover from surgery. So I'd be on a catheter for as long as I was in the hospital, which is actually a relief because yeah. you get rest. You know what I mean? And when you're not... I can, I took high salt for a long time. For 10 years, I was on a higher salt diet because I kept losing my salt in my case. And that helps you pee a little bit less. But over years, it caused some cysts on my kidneys. So I can't have high salt anymore. Mm. But you just have to be prepared. You have to know, you can tell when the medication wears off in my instance, because I do start slurring my speech a little bit. My brain starts to hurt a little bit more. Um, so then I just have to make sure I'm taking my medicine at the right times. Yeah. And do you still get an eight hour period of not needing to urinate when you take the medicine? Yes. Wow. And is there any risk of augmentation with this medicine where it will start to work, uh, differently over time or even start to not work as well over time? Yeah, I found that. So originally back in, in 2009, when I went on it, it wasn't working as well. So then we had to double the dose for a while and then it was working too well. And then that was making me sick. Uh, so then we had to cut it back. So now what I do, because what happens is if you're taking your, you can have a little bit of water. I'm on a bit of a fluid restriction. So I'm only supposed to have six glasses of water a day. Some days I drink more. So those are the days I take it only five days a week because I like to pee off the extra 
body fluid that my body retains because when I'm running or training now, I drink more. But if I take my medicine, then I'm maintaining too much fluid in my body, which can cause the low sodium. So then the next day I might not take it or take as much so that I can reduce my risk of getting a severe hyponatremia again. Wow. You're really making me reevaluate the power of nasal spray. <laughs> yeah. Well, here it is, actually. Yeah, it just looks like any regular old nasal spray. You just one shoot up your nose, you hold it, and then it instantly goes into my brain within five seconds and wow. you can feel it working. Wow. It's unbelievable. Tell me about the feeling of validation that you must have had after finally getting this diagnosis. And not just that, but you were preparing to die. And then all yeah. of a sudden, yeah. you have a life ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a little overwhelming to talk about. Um, yeah. Like, it was just so hard because my daughter was so young. You know, a lot of people thought I was crazy, to be honest. Like, my friends, some of my friends, I lost friends and other people because they thought, what is she talking about? She's just making up all this crazy stuff, even though they could see me wasting away. Mm. It's the saying that you know who really loves you when who keeps showing up for you through chronic illness over mm -hmm. years. And mm -hmm. in my case, over a decade and now almost two decades. You know, it caused a lot of stress in my marriage. Actually, I'm no longer with my husband now. Mm. Um, he actually said to me at one point, well, I didn't think you were ever going to get better he looks at me now and he's like, like, how did you get better? And I'm like, did you not witness that 15 years of hell? Like I, I persevered. Right. So there was a lot of loss through it, but the validation part is I'm just more persistent with doctors. Now I, I'm very grateful that I had the education I did to be able to figure it out in the first place. And I just remind them, you know, you have to trust your instincts. You have to have them based on some type of knowledge going into things and that I'm very much a force uh, mm. in life and in medical situations. I advocate crazily for other people now. And I've helped a lot of people get diagnosis with other medical problems and how to speak to doctors in a way where you can be heard, right? Yeah. And that's so important because so many people are in a position where they can't do that. And yes. with your neuroscience yeah. background, it's sort of a miracle that you were, like we spoke about at the very beginning, it's sort of a miracle that you were able to put this together yourself so that you could continue to push. Because in those last two years, when you had yeah. the answer, but no one would listen to you, I mean, if you had no idea of where to go and no idea what to do next and no one would listen to you, it's very possible, yeah. if not likely, that you would have died. So the fact that you had yeah. this answer kind of kept you pushing until you finally got someone to listen to you, give you that one nasal spray where within 20 seconds, you know that your whole life has changed instantly. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And what I found through the other diagnosis was having been someone who you know, did a PhD, presented at conferences, I have tons of successful colleagues around the world. They're just regular people. So I would phone somebody at the Mayo Clinic, or I'd phone someone at the Cleveland Clinic, and they, the world's best people would always call me back. And they're like, well, if you can't find the answer, we'll help you. So when I called Dr. Bichette in Montreal, I just thought, hey, I, we're equals here. I'm on your level. Why 
like I have the data to prove what is going on with me. I'm looking at this as a pure research perspective, but also as a patient trying to advocate for myself. He got called me back right away. And so I've had such good experience with people who are the best at what you do, like the specialists that you said that you follow for MCAS. Mm -hmm. They're open to talking to us because they know how much we're suffering yeah. and they're, they're happy to help. What part of the of BC are you in? I'm in Vancouver. Okay, so you, I mean, you're in a big city where there's, you know. I'm in a very big city. There, and that can make a really big difference. Like if you're in a, you know, if you're out in the boonies somewhere, it can be really hard to get yeah. good medical care. But even in a big city, you still weren't able to get anyone to listen to you. No, I was not. I, I was not. And I went to every single hospital here um, in the lower mainland to see people and kept going to different places until, and, and none of the people here would listen to me. It was really searching out a specialist in the area to advocate for me who happened to coincidentally be coming to a conference yeah. on, on an endocr endocrine disorders. Yeah. And that's an incredible tip for people out there. Yeah. If you, you know, yeah. Look across the world. Don't keep it to your hometown because you're not going to find the answers. You have to have a worldview that someone else in the world is going through this. And there is probably someone studying these problems. Mm, absolutely. Find yeah. them. Just Google your ass off and find these people, you know? Yeah, totally. And you're just making me feel so appreciative for my MCAS doctor here locally in Seattle. Who, you know, oh, I, yeah. I'd been looking for over 10 years in Seattle for yeah. an answer to my problems that had gotten increasingly worse. But when I finally found it here locally, this guy just knew everything that I needed to know to, you know, get my life back on track health wise. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. you know, it's life changing. Yeah, it's, it's completely life changing. And it yeah. easily could have not happened too. Oh, yeah. You easily could have spent the rest of your life in that wheelchair. Just like me. Well, I would have I would have died. I yeah. would have passed away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Wow. I am so appreciative that you reached out, Tracy. Like, this is exactly what I want this podcast to be for, is for people like you to be able to share your story, because it's so important to get it out there, because there are other people like you. You've shared the numbers yeah. and the statistics. There's probably yeah. a lot more people like you who there just need this nasal in spray. The world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this life-saving nasal spray. Um, yeah. and that's all they need. And the the risk of taking this medication is so low. The risk factors are so low and there is so yeah. much to gain, but they just don't know. They have no idea. Someone out there, I hope, I'm just crossing my fingers. Someone out there is like, I have been peeing all day, every day since my car yeah. crash, and I don't know why. Yeah. And here is an answer for you. And it's just so life-changing to just, you know, keep putting that information out there. And the way you're going about it is incredible. And I'm so impressed by it. And I'm just so grateful that you reached out to me. Just to wrap up this conversation today, what is the message that you would like to share to other people who are going through something similar and don't know where to turn? You have to really be clear on what you don't have and what symptoms you don't have. Be clear on what symptoms you do have and then start investigating what are the causes of those symptoms. Like for me, I did a systems approach. So I went, I'm peeing. So pee comes in the bladder, it comes through the kidneys, what hormones are related to that, right? And then I thought, well, I have a brain injury. How did that happen? Like, how is that related to hormones kind of stuff? And over time, I found the answers, trying to know what doctors to see 
in these areas is key as well. Obviously, you need to see a GP to get a referral. So if you have a head injury, it's neurology. If you have uh, kidney in injuries, it's nephrology. Like know your organ system. If it's a heart issue. It's card like in POTS, dysautonomia. It's cardiology that helps you with those problems, actually, even though it's a blood pressure problem. So know what, have, look up basic enough science to know what area of the body you're working with, what specialist would deal with those issues, and then try and figure out. But be very clear on what you don't have and be hard on yourself and going, do I really have that symptom or not? What are the clear symptoms you have? What organs are causing those symptoms? What doctors deal with those symptoms and go from there? Yeah. And then how do you keep that perseverance when your body is failing you and you have this brain fog? And for you, I mean, the ataxia, the aphasia, how do you find that fire to keep going? You have to want to live enough to want to keep going. And for me, it was, I had a small child and I did not want her to lose her mother. That drove me every day to find an answer was for her. And the other thing about the diabetes insipidus, it's not just car accidents, it's sport injuries. There's a lot of new articles published about concussions in sport, which we know is a huge problem in all sports. There was a swimmer who recently got a concussion and they just published an article. Uh, she hit her head on the side of the pool when she was coming in to touch the wall. Uh, football players, soccer players, baseball players, gymnasts, all these people, anybody, my daughter used to play volleyball and basketball in school and got a concussion doing that is at risk for this problem as well. But you have to find your why. Why do I want to live? And that why has to be strong. And then you have to find your how. Amazing. I, th- what an incredible conversation. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am thrilled to share this episode, honored to share your story. Please tell us where we can go. Uh, anyone who's listening who wants to connect with you, see your advocacy work online, anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah. So I would look um, for anybody who thinks they have a rare disorder, I would look under the National Organization for Rare Disorders, N O R D. There are 6,000 orphan diseases out there, and NORD publishes information on all of them, including dysautonomia, dystonia, ataxia, Broca's aphasia, central diabetes, insipidus. That's a good place to start if you think you have something. Um, you can also look at the uh, central National Diabetes Insipidus Foundation. Um, If you think you have diabetes insipidus, you're going to need a water deprivation test, which you can Google. And um, for me, if anybody's interested in me, I don't have a lot on my Instagram uh, at this point, but it's tracy.cur13 on Instagram. But I'm going to start be doing a series on central diabetes insipidus coming up in the next couple of months so they can check back there. That's where you can find out things. Awesome. And I'll tag you on Instagram on our page at Major Pain Podcast when this goes live. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about my story, it's actually called uh, Tracy's Story of Rare Resilience. And you type in N-O-R-D and it's on the internet. It's been published. Yeah, I'll find I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. And it's T-R-A-C-E-Y. Uh, S apostrophe S story uh, of rare resilience. So that's the story they published on me this year. Very cool. Well, Tracy, I am so impressed 
by your story of survival and by the advocacy work that you're doing now, the chronic illness community needs people like you. You're doing incredible work, and I am thrilled to amplify this story on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us. Thank you, Jesse. I'm so grateful for the Major Pain Podcast and for you to start this, to share and help other people advocate for each other to spread the message so we can all help each other. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. Take care, Jesse. Be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine, from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.